The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob Imrani. Accident or injury, call Jacob Imrani, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason. Sue Kalinsky is off for this show. I'm going to work solo. And just to, I mean, there are a lot of Sue Kalinsky fans out there. Sue Kalinsky groupies. Uh, she is. Uh, she had a personal thing she dealt with. Uh, then she went on a well-deserved vacation. And I think this is the last show we will do without Sue. So she is coming back. Thanks to Andy Kamenetsky for filling in. Uh, on a couple of shows. This one, as I mentioned, is is solo. Um, and we appreciate you being out there. So my guest today is just, you know, I love talking to actors. Uh, my guest today is one of Hollywood's finest character actors. He is best known for his role in the Cone Brothers, A Serious Man. He has appeared in seven Woody Allen movies, along with films like The Mission and Ishtar, The Pickup Artist and Suspect. He has made countless television appearances, and his current show is Bill Hader's Barry on HBO. Fred Malamud joins me. Fred, thank you so much for doing this, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. I'm, I'm happy to be with you. So, you know, it's hard to not start with A Serious Man, which has been called like one of the greatest bad guy performances uh, at, at one of the great villains of, of modern cinema. I absolutely love the movie as, as an actor. Did you think of him as a bad guy when you're acting? Can you think of your character as a bad guy? Um, I, I think you're onto something very important. Uh, the, the way you phrase the question. Um, I think you always have to defend your characters in your own mind. Uh, What's so interesting about acting, one of, one of the things that's so interesting about acting to me is that you have the, the obligation to consider how, the way people do things, their, their behavior from their point of view. I think even the most horrible people, I think, uh, you know, even Hitler and, and more recent presidents of the United States, other people that I, that I don't like, um, didn't get up and say, how am I going to mess up the world today? Uh, within their frame of reference, uh, if only everybody would listen to them, the you know, if, if, if I were king, the world would swing. I think that that's the attitude of a lot of people, particularly people in power, uh, as they approach life. So my job as I, as I approach it is to defend the characters. So, uh, Cy Abelman in particular, was not an unfamiliar kind of a guy uh, to me in the context of my the way I grew up. Um, his, you know, he he clearly wanted to dominate everybody else's life and everybody else's decision making, kind of a Machiavellian villain in that way. But his style was to kind of put the, to sort of put them in a trance. His whole way of being and <laughs> talking and and uh, you know treating them was to kind of massage them into this state of, you know, soporific, uh, um, you know, trust for him. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, uh, so to answer your question, so my, this is my, my long winded answer to your question. Um, I, I, it was clear that he wanted something extreme, but, and, and I knew reading the script, uh, what his function was within the story. I mean, un undoubtedly he was the villain of that story, but, um, it's not hard for me to remember many people in my past, uh, friends of my parents and others who were kind of like that, who, um, got what they wanted, navigated, negotiated what they wanted in the world uh, with this kind of strange faux sweetness. <laughs> yeah, right. If you know what I mean. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was like, because uh, he, in this weird way, was deviously charming. Is that is that a way to describe it? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm... It's hard for me to say because I was thinking of it from the inside, but I think, yeah, in, in a way, in, in, a, in a, the kind of unctuous, you know, way, he was, he was, uh, very, certainly very, uh, solicitous of everybody else's feelings and all that stuff. Uh, and he made it seem, or tried to make it seem like his suggestions were, uh, you know, commonsensical, we're, we're just, just, you know, of course it would be that way. Um, <laughs> So, you know, that, that, you, and you're always, when you're an actor, you're always looking for what's inconsistent about characters. That's what makes them interesting. In the heroic characters, you look for what's broken in them. You look for the faults that they have. And in the evil characters, like Cy Ebelman, uh, you look for what may be heroic or what at least, uh, pleases other people. Yeah. So, yeah. so those kinds of, those kinds of inconsistencies, uh, are what make characters, uh, kind of real. Uh, there's another film that comes to mind that I did years ago, uh, a film called In a World, which is all about the voiceover world. And I played uh, the the father of uh, Lake Bell's character. Lake Bell wrote, directed, and starred in that movie. And it's about mm -hmm. a young woman trying to make her way in this very small, uh, rarefied world of voiceover. At that, at that time, rarefied world of voiceover actors. Uh, and as her father, I was kind of a big gun in that field, but I was so threatened by my daughter trying to get into that world that I mistreated her horribly, even though mm. I loved her. So that those, those, th those situations where, uh, people are, um, have these kind of, uh, strange, um, well, inconsistencies is the word that I used before, but the, 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 you know, there are things about them that are, uh, puzzling because they're not, they, they, they don't seem to make sense. Um, with what their objectives are yeah or what what make them you know human and like you know like, like real people yes yes so when you were a kid your dad was a producer on shows like car 54 where are you and the count basie show and these great classic tv shows is that what hooked you into the business is that what what drew you in and did you know from those experiences yeah this is what i want to do with my life it's funny, you know, I, I, when I, I, when I was a kid, especially a young kid, I, I had fantasies about it, but I never really regarded it as a profession. I, I used to just sort of play games with it. I remember when I was, when I was very young, I always had trouble sleeping. I've always been a bad sleeper my whole life. So when I was a kid, I had this bookshelf in my room with my books on it. And I liked adventure stories like Tarzan and, uh, King Arthur and stuff like that. And, you know, typical boy stuff. And when I couldn't sleep, which was frequently, I would have this game that I played where I'd grab a book off the shelf of books and I'd sit down on my bed and I would begin to read the book aloud. And people that are as old as me may remember they used to, Andy Devine 
used to have a show. Mm. It was a Disney show on, uh, I think it was part of the, 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 at that time, the wonderful world of Disney, which was a blanket for a lot of Disney stuff. Anyway, Andy Devine would read stories to kids. And as he was reading it, he'd get a page or so in, and then the, the scene would morph into a movie of the, of the story that he was talking about. So, and I loved, I loved to be read to or told stories when I was a kid. Mm. So I, I would pretend that I had this show where I would be reading these stories to kids. Um, but I Wait a minute, so that, you had your own show where you were reading stories to kids? I, I pretended that that was, yes. my, you know, that was my, you know, my sort of fantasy, but I would actually sit there in my bed and, and read it, you know, read the stories. <laughs> uh, and then when I was a little older, when I was maybe 11 or so, as a, as a Christmas present one year, I got a, a tape recorder. And this is in the days when tape recorders were uh, kind of arcane, you know, kind of, uh, you know, they were around, but it was to get one was a big deal. Sure. So my, my dad got me this little Japanese tape recorder. This is before cassettes. This is when they were still on little, re little teeny reels of tape. And uh, I used to play, you know, make voices into it and pretend I was doing interviews with my friends and stuff like that. And then, but I never, I never thought about being an actor as, in a, you know, any kind of organized way. And then when I got to college, I had a friend that had gone to the same high school that I did, and he was a couple of years older than me. And he used to do these crazy sort of dream plays, very, very uh, kind of avant-garde, nutty plays. And because we knew each other, he said to me, "You want, will you be in my play? So I said, yeah, sure. So I was in his play, and then I got to be in another play. And I went to, kind of, I went to Hampshire College, kind of a hippie college where you could kind of do whatever you wanted. Right. So I just kept doing play after play just because I liked it. And it, and it also, it, uh, it <laughs> excused me from the more rigorous kinds of studies that I would have had to do had I had a wider diet of things that I studied. Plus, you can meet girls, you know, it's a good way to meet girls. If you're, sure. if you're a heterosexual uh, actor, uh, you have a very wide, uh, you know, range of people to, to meet. So, of course, I liked all that. So I just kind of, kind of did it for, I enjoyed it for fun. And, but I never, I always wanted to be a writer. And then my final year of college, my fourth year of college, I met these two women. They came, they, I, I went to school in Massachusetts and they came to Smith College, which is a, a college allied with Hampshire College where I went. Uh, and they had a company called Shakespeare and Company where they did very kind of interesting, unusual stuff. It was a, it was a company of people who spoke English, but from all over the world, uh, British people, Canadians, people from various parts of Africa. Uh, and they would do usually classic plays, but they had the, this kind of interesting approach to them, language-based approach. So I was kind of fell under their spell and became interested in, in, in working that way. And they asked me to join the company, hmm. which I did initially. And then I felt like I really don't know what I'm doing. I really kind of have to get a deeper grip on, on how to do this. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll only apply to Yale Drama School. That's the only, <laughs> right. the only school I'll apply to. And if I get in, I'll go. If I don't, I'll just try and be an actor. So I got in. I was lucky I got in and then had three years of, of Yale and, uh, you know, learn some things. It took me another 20 years or so after getting <laughs> out there to kind of get a better handle on what I was doing. But, I, you know, it did, it did help a great deal. And I met a lot of people that influenced me, both kids and teachers, and uh, many of whom have remained, you know, my close friends and stuff. So, so I had, by that time I was, but it was funny. I never, I never, I kind of dreamt of it, but never, I never planned for it. And when I finally did become an actor, 
my parents were not, <laughs> not were not thrilled about it. They knew how uh, you know the rough road that it often is yeah. for people, and they were. I remember my father saying. Like, why don't you be a theatrical lawyer instead? You know, you can be a <laughs> not knowing that theatrical lawyers are, you know, the, the most hated breed of, you know, a combination of hated, hated things all in one. Um, but so I never, I, I it kind of, I kind of feel like I backed into it, but it, it, it's always, it's always been fascinating to me. But as a profession, uh, it kind of came late to me. So I wanted to be an actor. Did um, you? Gr- yeah, I did. Growing up in Toledo, Ohio, and I wanted to go to Yale. Um, I, I, you, you took the path that I ended up, uh, not, not taking, but I mean, I remember my first time on an airplane, I was 17 years old and we went to New York for my senior trip. And I still remember I saw cats, which was a gigantic deal in 1983. I saw dream girls with Jennifer holiday. Wow. Uh, I saw Agnes of God with, uh, Geraldine page. And I saw Ellen Page in the off-Broadway production of Little Shop of Horrors. It was like my great, my great introduction to Broadway and to New York theater. And what was the first, because you grew up in Manhattan, what was the first Broadway experience that you were like, ah, oh, this is just, this is amazing? You know, my parents took me so often. And in those days, <clears throat> believe it or not, people, people that live in New York or that are at Broadway, uh, uh, denizens today won't believe it, but Broadway tickets in those days were not so expensive. Hmm. Uh, when, when I was a kid, uh, a, a, uh, a mezzanine seat or actually even an orchestra seat in Broadway was about 10 or $11. Wow. Yeah. There, <laughs> times, have, times have changed with dynamic <laughs> yeah. pricing and yes, definitely. It's $300, you know, crazy. I, I, that's why, you know, people can't go regularly ordinary people. Anyway, uh, you could go to the theater for much, you know, reg- with regularity, much more manageably. So my parents took me all the time. And I remember seeing the first one that I remember seeing what I, what I really got, I really thought, wow, was Camelot with Richard Burton. Oh, wow. And, and, and Julie Andrews. Yeah. And Roddy McDowell. Uh, and then interestingly, um, I went to drama school with Kate Burton, Richard Burton's daughter. Um, who's a wonderful actress in her own right yeah. and, and got to know more about him and from through her. And, and, you know, I had that sort of, uh, that kind of, um, connection. But anyway, I saw Camelot and, but I also remember seeing, good Lord, uh, Carousel, uh, funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Um, uh, my fair lady. Yeah. Uh, dozens of them. And I, I always have loved music. And so, and I loved musicals. I loved straight plays too. But as a kid, musicals were so exciting. And in those days, uh, you know, the orchestra was peopled with real musicians. Uh, and just to hear the, the music live and you know, see, see it perform was so great. And my, I, 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 Camelot's the first one that I remember. And we had the record. We had the LPL. Oh, and I loved also, um, Peter Pan. Hmm. When I was a when I was a kid, there was a yearly showing of the musical of Peter Pan on television. Every year, it was a Broadway version of it, which someone had had made into a television show. Um, and I that that I that was fantastic. And I remember my parents introducing me. The guy who played Captain Hook in that in that show was an actor called Cyril Richard, fantastic mm-hmm. Australian actor. And at a, a party, my parents took me to when I was couldn't have been more than six or so they introduced me to him and i was so 
both <laughs> frightened and also enamored. And my dad uh, also I, I wound up eventually producing television commercials. So one time I remember <clears throat> he took me to Central Park. I was playing in a playground where I used to often play near where I lived. And he introduced me to Margaret Hamilton. He had used Margaret Hamilton mm, yeah. in, a Max, in a Maxwell House ad, Buffy ad. And I, I was, I had been terrified as many, <laughs> many, many of us were. Yeah. Yeah. By the, by the Wizard of Oz. And I, and, you know, she looked quite different, of course, you know, but I could still, she looked familiar enough that I, I knew who that, that, who she was. And I kind of recoiled and she was so sweet and, you know, so nice and, and, you know, made me relax. And she told me that so many, that, that it, it had kind of affected her whole life that so many kids, had been raised with that performance, uh, it, you know, in their somewhere swimming around in their subconscious or, you know, semi-consciousness that, that it, it kind of hurt her that all of her life kids would hmm. you know, get run away, but she was very sweet <laughs> and very nice. So I was raised around it. My, you know, my father, as you said, produced a show called car 54, where are you? Um, and, uh, the, the stars of that show, I was taken to the set of that show uh, many times and the stars of that show were very sweet to me and I got to know them and but uh it, it was always familiar to me but I never particularly had a a dream about it except except in the most uh except in the most you know fantastic ways never any organized plan so you go from being a kid going to Broadway to <clears throat> actually being on Broadway in Amadeus Peter Schaefer's Amadeus what was that first night like gosh the first night i i i, I mean i was nervous is about <laughs> is about the best uh the best i can you know say uh also I, I had a very kind of difficult time because i had when i went to drama school we were trained exclusively in stage acting the presumption was the probably incorrect presumption was that if you were if you were reasonably uh, adept at doing stage acting that film acting and other forms of acting would come naturally to you. Um, so we were only trained in stage acting. And I worked at the Yale Rep, which was the repertory company associated with the drama school. And then I worked for a year after that at the Guthrie Theater, which is a theater out in Minnesota that I got a, immediately after school, I got a job working at this theater. And then I came to New York and was in Amadeus and I developed this unbelievably powerful debilitating you know crippling stage fright horrible really yeah horrible so much so that it took every ounce of courage and uh <laughs> discipline that i had just to get myself to the theater and i was so young i mean i was a young kid i was 26 or i think 26 uh that i said to myself if i if i if i quit this I'll just die. I'll just roll up in a bowl and die. I can't, mm. I, I can't quit. So I toughed it out, but I, I, I felt horrible because it was a great play. And I felt like all my attention, all my effort was going to just getting myself through it. I felt kind of like I was cheating the audience. And at the, finally, when the end, when, when the, when the run came to an end, um, I thought, oh my God, this is horrible. You know, I, I, I said, I'm going to be an actor. And people said, oh, don't be an actor. It's too hard. And I was like, you know, I'll show you. And then I found out that I really didn't, I found acting on stage, uh, very, very, um, 
hard to the point that I really didn't want to do it. Really? Yeah. Where do you I, think it where do you think it came from? I mean, I'm sure you've done work on this, but where did that come from? That because you'd been to Yale Drama School, you'd been on stage. What what happened? Well, <clears throat> I think the 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 true answer to that is um like many other people, I had some unhealthy reasons for wanting to be an actor. They weren't all unhealthy, but some of them were quite unhealthy. I I you know, it's funny. I I Within my family, um, I felt my father, who I mentioned to you before, was a, a guy that I, I was very close to and loved deeply. And he was a lovely guy, very kind of good natured and sweet. But there was always a quality of depression about him. He was not, he, he, he was, he, he felt at some deep level kind of like he had failed and it, 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 uh, it permeated a lot of his personality. Hmm. And I got the message somehow as a kid, as a young kid, that it was my life's work uh, to kind of make life seem like a winnable proposition to him. Hmm. Uh, and that I had to, also I was adopted. I think that had something to do with it. I think I got this, this idea that, you know, if you're abandoned once you can, it can happen again. And so I got this, this kind of, uh, this kind of mandate that I, it was my job to to amaze people, to lift up their spirits, to be this kind of um, superhuman um, force that would make people want to live. And I think I carried that with me. Uh, That's impossible into, pressure, right? Exactly. And I began to resent, even though it was, it was certainly self-imposed pressure, but it was, you know, I, it was the way I approached it. And I had this, this idea that an actor has to become ha somehow beyond human. Uh, and I think that made me resent this kind of obligation, even though I love, I love the feeling of having that power, the power to amaze people or make them, you know, happy if they're not happy. I resented it also at the same time because it was uh, it was so burdensome and it was kind of like everything for everybody else. And what about me? Yeah. So, yeah. so I, th I think that was the kind of I think those were the underpinnings of why it became so difficult as as time went on. And as I em embarked on a long course of psychotherapy and introspection and, and many other things, things kind of rearranged in me uh, so that um it doesn't work that way anymore. Um, I kind of realized in a, in a, in a, in a deeper way, in a, in a, in an almost physical way that the actor, an actor, it, it has to be human, not superhuman. Right. Um, which, uh, took, took some of the, um, the difficulty out of it for me. But, uh, it took a lot of kind of rearranging within me um to to uh to kind of make peace with it yeah let me ask you about uh woody allen you've done seven woody allen films um your second movie was the classic hannah and her sisters you were in my favorite all time which is husbands and wives um how did you come to be cast in in a woody allen film for the first time well <clears throat> when when you go to uh one of five or six drama schools, the kind of most prominent drama schools in the United States, 
um, they used to have, I'm not sure that they still do this, but when I was there, which is 40 something years ago, um, <clears throat> at the end of, uh, your, the, the year in which you graduate, they have a kind of a centralized audition and people come from Juilliard and Yale and Carnegie. And I think, uh, I can't remember the other, what the other schools are, but they have a kind of, you, ha- you do a kind of centralized audition and it's filled with people that are agents producers, casting directors, anybody who's interested in the kind of new upcoming crop of young actors. So, pardon me, this was held, this was 1981, and it was held uh, at, uh, actually at Juilliard, uh, if I remember rightly. And many, many people from, you know, from Saturday Night Live, from agencies all over the place came. So uh, you, you could you could do any scenes you wanted. You could choose any scenes you wanted, but you did them with other people. You didn't act them by yourself. Right. So me and a couple of friends of mine, uh, David Allen Greer, the, who you may know. Oh, actor, yeah, sure. Uh, so he was a classmate of mine, good friend of mine. And another guy, Steve Hendrickson, wonderful actor, friend of mine also, uh, elected to do uh, sort of ridiculously comic pieces. And other friends of mine in school said, uh, what are you doing? You know, don't, you, you don't, don't do anything that's that, you know, goofy. You, you, this is a big, you know, high prestige thing. And I remember people saying, well, oh, that's what you want to do. Okay. But, but, <laughs> but, but, but my thought was all these people are going to be sitting for what, for nine hours watching kids, you know, do Sam Shepard plays and Chekhov and Shakespeare and whoever knows. O'Neill and Tennessee right. Williams and yeah. Right. So I thought after hour six or seven, you're going to, you know, your ass is going to hurt and you're going to, you're going to want. so I thought if I do something that's really funny in a kind of a absurd way, and but genuinely funny, um, that'll, that'll land well. And I won that bet. Yeah. That yeah. Bet. A friend of mine, uh, a, a wonderful playwright called Keith Redine had written a play, which we had done at Yale called Fly Boys, which is a parody of World War One kind of stuff. And uh, I, we did that, and I, my part in it was particularly juicy and, and idiotic and ridiculous. <laughs> and, and, and you know, people were sort of laughing so loud that you could place shook. And then, the, and, the, and they would, uh, at the end of it, the next day, they would post everybody that wanted to meet you, all the various casting directors and agents and producers and stuff. And my name was on like every list. Wow, one of, one of the great triumphs of my of my early life. So one of the people who was interested in meeting me was a casting director, very, very well-known casting director, a lovely woman called Juliet Taylor, who, uh, I mean, if I told you the films that she, the number of Oscar-winning films that she cast and the number of actors she discovered, I mean, the, we'd take the whole show up. Yeah. But she, she liked me, and she was Woody's casting director at the time, the only casting director that Woody used. So she said to me, uh, you know, uh, there's a, there's a movie, um, Woody would like to meet you for it. Hmm. Now I had, I had been a huge, huge Woody Allen film, a Woody Allen uh, film fan and f- fan of his. And I actually met him when I was younger because, um, the actor, Tony Roberts, who you may know. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, right. So Tony Roberts was in a lot of Woody Allen films, particularly his earlier films. And he was good friends with Woody and Tony Roberts I knew growing up because my dad's best friend was Tony Roberts's father. Tony Roberts's father was an actor and uh, announcer called Kenneth Roberts. Okay. And he, he and my dad were close, close friends. Excuse me. So I knew, I knew, um, Tony from 
my early years. So the, he, Tony did a play on Broadway with Woody Allen and Diane Keaton uh, called, well, he did two. He did, the first one was Don't Drink the Water, and the second one was um, Play It Again, Sam. Sure. So I went to see, my parents took me to see Play It Again, Sam. I was 12 or 13, I think 12. And uh, my father said, let's go backstage. So I went backstage and he introduced me to, you know, Woody and, and it was a big, exciting thing. And anyway, um, years later, um, when I, when I got to meet him, uh, I just walked into the room and we chatted for, uh, you know, a minute or two and, uh, and that was it. And then he cast me in the film and, and for some reason, I, I think I didn't know at the time how serious he is. He's extremely, extremely serious. I mean, his his sort of demeanor is extremely serious. Right, right. And and foolishly, I tried to say a couple of things to make him laugh. I tried to be funny, and I hit once, once or twice. I hit a little bit. So um, he, uh, for some reason, he liked me. I think also, I physically, you know, he's very slight and small. And I'm I'm kind of big, and I think he he I think he there was kind of like. Um, a relationship between if you if you look at Charlie Chaplin films, there's a guy that Charlie Chaplin, an actor, Eric, I can't remember his last name, but an actor that that Charlie Chaplin often casts against him because he was big and imposing looking. So I think maybe that was also something to do with it. So uh, Woody would just uh, he liked me, so I would just I wouldn't after in the in the period that I've described to you when I kind of stopped acting on stage. Yeah, um, I had the good fortune of having an agent who was very, very big and powerful in the voiceover world. And at a young age, I, I kind of, in an age when that business was very different than it is today, not nearly as crowded, I became kind of a big player in that world. Oh yeah. I'm very, I mean, I think Super Bowls and the world right. or uh, the, the Olympics. And I mean, right. you've got, I've worked in radio for 50 years. You've got pipes. I I'm just a guy who talks. Uh, but you've got what what we classically call pipes. Yeah, no longer in fashion, as you may, as you may <laughs> yeah, have It's a little different, yeah. <clears throat> but um, so I I kind of devoted myself to the voiceover world. And I would occasionally act in movies, but I wouldn't audition. You know, if so, somebody liked me, or, I mean, I would audition if it was something very unusual, but usually I wouldn't. And, and uh, Woody Allen just liked me, and he would just... You know, uh, Julia Taylor would say, Woody has a psychiatrist, it's a week, would you like to do it? And that was it. So I, in my sort of spoiled way, I'd say, yeah, sure. So it, it kind of took on the, the quality of, a, of, a, of, a, of an avocation. It was more like a hobby in a sense, hmm. although I took it seriously. But I was making, I was a young guy and I had no, I wasn't married and had kids. I had no responsibilities. And I was making, by my standards, you know, a lot of money in the voiceover world. Yeah. So that allowed me to kind of, remain as an actor for my whole life um and then some years after that when i did have responsibilities and was married and had children and so on my kind of voice kind of deep dramatic james earl jonesy voices what very much went out of fashion so i, I was around for both ends of it uh and na now that's an extremely extremely crowded world of people wanting to do voice acting and it's largely non-union which means right. that the whole uh, fee structure has changed, and it's quite it's it's quite difficult and quite different from when I was, you know, very active in it. Well, what's it like watching <clears throat> the Super Bowl or the Olympics or any of the show and hearing your your voice as the 
the voice of it? Well, uh, it's exciting. Uh, it's I, you know, it's funny because I was the voice of CBS Sports for about eight or eight years, I think it was seven or eight years, and uh, my my ignorance of sports was legendary. <laughs> I'm not much of a sports fan. I like I, the only sports that I really like are baseball and boxing and I, and my boxing fanhood has gone pretty much to mma now yeah um so i don't follow you know Wait, are I'm you not, a big mma fan i wouldn't say big but i but i i do enjoy it i find yeah. it interesting uh but those are the only two like it, on television I, you know i don't i skip over football games i might watch the super bowl or something but i, I i'm not really into you know a lot of sports i do like baseball because it's it's, I don't know. It's, it moves at my pace. It's slow. It's slow. And then every, every few minutes, every, like every 15 minutes, something exciting happens. That's about the right, <laughs> right speed for me. Um, and also, you know, it's bucolic. It's outside. You're sitting, if you go to a game, it's really nice. It's, it's, you know, you have a day it's outside. Pastoral, it's right. Yeah. Right. And you have a beer. It's a nice experience. Yeah. But I'm not a big sports guy. So when I worked at CBS sports, uh, everything, I was the voice of CBS sports, but I didn't do commentating. I did all the signatures for every, I was on every show that they had, um, but uh, everything had to be written for me because I didn't know anything about the sport or very little about the sports that I was, that I was, that I was, you know, talking about. Um, but so that, that do, doing that kind of work was satisfying in the sense that I was working and I was making a good living, but artistically it's a very narrow, narrow thing, very small. Right. So I enjoyed the, I certainly enjoyed the fruits of it, but, and I continued to write and do other things, but it kept me in show business. A strange fact, a strange kind of, it's not really a bragging fact, but a strange uh, thing about my life as an actor is because of the voiceover world, primarily in my entire life, I've never had a straight job from the day that I graduated from drama school, which is wow. uh, March of of 1981 which is what is that now 42 years ago yeah yeah I've, on, I've only ever worked as an actor that's all i've ever done so between broadway and movies was that the heart of your voiceover career yeah mostly and then i started to do movies i started to kind of catch on in movies in about 1986 86 87 i did a whole bunch of movies in that era um and then I had a very kind of long dormant period where I just did voiceovers uh, for a long, long time, and except for occasionally little parts in movies. And then, and then, <laughs> I had I had a I had a kind of a funny experience. Here was the experience. So I got I, I do everything late in life. I didn't get married till I was forty two. I didn't have children till I was forty seven. I didn't achieve my kind of level of quasi stardom till I was. I don't know, 52 or 50, something like that, you know, right. so everything's late. <laughs> um, always late for school, you know, anyway. <laughs> um, so I, I had a very long, good career as a voiceover artist. And during that time I got married and had kids and, uh, it so happened that I have twin, I have twin boys who are now 20. They'll be 21, uh, in November. And, uh, they, when they were very young, uh, they were diagnosed with autism, very, mm. you know, very serious discovery and one with, you know, particularly serious autism, not so much the other one at all. But, uh, so this was a life changing thing. Sure. 
And at the time, I was, we were living in Manhattan, and there was such an onslaught, there was such an uh, avalanche of cases of autism. This is about 2004, I guess, 2004, 2005. Uh, such a huge number of cases that even though I was entitled to get these services, you couldn't get them. There weren't people to provide these services. I was told there's a particular kind of therapy called ABA therapy, um, which I was told you must get, and, and early intervention is key, and it's important to get it when they're very young. But I couldn't get it because mm. in Manhattan there were just so many cases. So it so happened that my wife and I had a had a country house in Montauk on the east end of Long Island. So out there, that's a different county, um, and it really hadn't exploded to the same degree out there. So uh, we found a school out there that was great, and I was able to get services for my kids. So we moved out to Montauk full-time in early 2005, if I remember rightly, end of 2004, beginning of 2005. Uh, and at the same time, there was a kind of a, a, a groundswell where... Um, Fashions were changing the voiceover world, and a new guy came to to take over CBS Sports and got rid of a lot of the people that were associated with CBS Sports, including me. Hmm. So all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I was in a situation where I had two houses, I had two kids with a serious disability, and all the people depending on me, and all of a sudden, I was not making any money at all. I was right. broke, I mean, you know, literally. So, and I, you know, I had been, I hadn't been that prodigal. I had some money saved, you know, of course, but when you have kids and you have, you know, that, that it doesn't last too long. Yeah. Right. And so I was living out uh, in Montauk and kind of struggling to make a living. And this friend of mine said, look, you know, you're not, if you had your, if you had your way, what would you like to do? I had about a year's worth of money till I would have to sell the house and make some very serious sacrifices. My friend said, what would you like to do? I said, well, I'd really like to go back to acting and writing like I did. But, you know, I have kids. I have responsibilities. I mean, you know, I, I, it's too worrisome. He said, listen, you, you have a year. Why don't you just try it and see what happens? So I did uh, to no, you know, great results. I was on uh, uh, Law and Order like every other actor in New York and, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. But, but nothing, to, nothing that you could really live on. Uh, and then one day I was sitting at home with my wife. The phone rang, and she answered it, and she said, do you know somebody called Joel Cohen? Wow. <clears throat> and I, I, I did know them a little bit because uh, I had gone to school with Fran McDormand and John Turturro, and I knew John Goodman. A lot of people are kind of in their retinue. Yeah. And about, about 15 years or so prior to that, I had auditioned for the movie Barton Fink, if you remember that movie. I do remember the movie Barton Fink. So I auditioned for the role of the guy uh, that was the movie executive. Yep. Uh, uh, the, in fact, the guy that played that role, I, his name escapes me at the moment, but he was wonderful in it. He just passed away uh, like about a month or two ago. But he was great in that. He was nominated for an Oscar. But I auditioned for that role, and according to uh, Ethan Cohen, I placed. I came in second. But the other guy won it, and he was wonderful. Anyway, they remembered me, and they were looking at some... They, they were casting uh, this film, A Serious Man, and this role, uh, Cy Abelman, that you mentioned, was kind of a key role, and they were having a hard time casting it. And they were looking at footage of Taya Leone, the actress Taya Leone, for another yes. part. And it so happened that the, that the 
footage they were looking at had was from another movie with me and her where we were talking. So when they saw me, uh, Ethan Cohen said to Joe, what about Fred Malamed for that, for that role? And Joe said, yeah, that's a good idea. So Joe called me up and he said, listen, uh, you know, we're casting this movie. Uh, there's just a role. It's kind of an interesting role. I just have a feeling you'd be very good in this role. Are you interested? I was like, am I interested? <laughs> Check my book. Yeah. So, so I went to New York and I read for them there in New York and they were very uh, positive and they said, look, we definitely want you to do it. We're not going to see anybody else. Uh, the only problem is we're working on three movies kind of simultaneously. Uh, one of them is Burn After Reading, which is a big star-studded movie uh, with Brad Pitt. And, so and, funny. Such a great movie. But the problem is we have to do the movies based on when we can get the people. Mm. So they wound up making uh, that movie first. So I, th so they thought, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll speak to you. So, and by this time I'm quite broke. I'm really out of money. And uh, a year passes, a whole year passes. I don't hear anything from them. And mm. I thought, oh God, you know, this is the kind of thing that happens in show business. It's not so unusual. <clears throat> you're all set to do something and you're all, you know, you're all excited about it. It looks great. And then something, the financing falls apart or somebody gets sick or somebody yeah, doesn't right. do it anymore. I thought, oh, this is going to never going to happen. This is such a great part and never going to happen. Finally, after a year and a half, and by this time I'm really like, you know, really worried, um, I get a call saying we're going to go ahead and make the movie. So I went out to Minnesota where, where they were from. Yep. It's largely, largely uh, autobiographical movie. And I had a total blast making it. I just loved making it. I loved them. I loved Michael Stuhlberg and everybody else in the movie. And I just, you know, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. But it took another year, of course, for them to do all the posts on it and, you know, for it to come out. And then finally, when it did come out, I think it came out at the end of 2009, beginning of 2010. I was cast in it in 2006 or something like that. Yeah. So finally, when it came out, uh, there was this kind of great reaction to it. Uh, it, you know, it wasn't a hugely successful film, uh, from a commercial point of view, but within the business, uh, you know, everybody kind of noticed it and, 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 uh, for me, it had this effect of kind of put at this a rather late date, kind of putting me into all these people's consciousness. And, you know, I've remained there since then. Yeah. Yeah. For, uh, for which I'm, you know, extremely grateful. By the way, you uh, mentioned uh, it, whether or not it was a commercial success. I will tell you that I owned a 10 screen art house movie theater in really? Palm Desert. Yeah. In Palm Desert, California. And we played that movie a serious man for four or five months and we were struggling we were having wow. a hard time people and that movie again because you know with huge jewish community out there huge art film community out there and that was a really big movie so it may not have been uh, a worldwide box office hit but it was a very big hit in palm desert california i'm glad to hear that especially because a lot of the characters i've played including Asylum and have not endeared me to the Jewish community. You may be surprised <laughs> to learn my my uh, penchant for uh, making fun of people in the work that I do. Uh, you know, partly I think you know I look I look I have this kind of authoritative, uh, yes. you know, rabbinical look, which for anybody who knows me is a joke because I'm such a 
goofball uh, <laughs> in real life. But uh, I, I have the ability to be kind of overbearing, obviously. So I, I, I enjoy um, kind of sending up, you know, all the authority figures that I grew up presenting my whole life. Uh, so I'm often cast, you know, in, the, in those kind of roles. But I'm delighted to hear that in Palm Desert, uh, the film did well, and I was, I was, a, you know, a, an anti-hero star. Yes, it was out. a blockbuster. It was a blockbuster. <laughs> So I want to get to Barry, which uh, you play a, a supporting role in. It's great. It feels like it's getting even better. Uh, your scenes, a lot of your scenes are with uh, Henry Winkler, who plays Gene Cousineau. Um, and you've done a lot of television stuff. But this feels different. It feels like a really good independent film. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I think that's, I think that's a very apt description of it. Uh, you know, the, the, we finished the, the, the season that's on now, which is the fourth season of it, is the last season. And uh, it's really, I, I don't want to ruin it for people that have yet to experience it, but it's quite a ride, particularly this last season. Yeah. Um, I came to it late. I've only, I was only on it for the latter two years of it, but I loved, really loved being on it, both because the quality of the writing and the acting and the direction, Bill Hader not only started, but directed all the episodes of yeah. the, in, the, in the last season. He's really a remarkable talent, right? amazing talent. I would say I almost, I mean, it reminds me a lot of, uh, of Vince Gilligan, uh, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. I mean, I, I think Bill Hader is like a legit auteur. I do too. And I, I, I honestly, it's my honest uh, opinion that as time goes on, uh, he has some features lined up that he's been, he, that he's worked on dur during the COVID, the long COVID break that we took, um, you know, almost two years, um, uh, which he's going to get to now. Uh, I really think that he's going to be a major force in the feature world. I mean, the feature world and the television world have coalesced somewhat yes. to one thing, but, uh, I, I, he's a really remarkable talent. Anyway, um, I, loved really loved being on that show and and uh in addition to the fact that the quality is so interesting and so high in the show uh the people on it I, i'm particularly it was a particularly warm and great bunch of people henry winkler who you mentioned whose agent i play and the and the and the show uh and i knew each other before we were on another show together called children's hospital mm. some years ago so we were already friends and we and we and he's a little bit older than i am but uh, we share many things in common. Like me, he went to Yale Drama School. Like me, he he lived for many years on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. You know, a kind of a certain social kind of a structure. I also, by the way, lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you know, we we knew a lot of things in common. Had a lot of common experiences. Um, when I was when I went to drama school, I remember him being sort of pointed out as you know, an example of of somebody who succumbed to the pressures of of of, of stardom, and you know, uh, uh, of course, that didn't that didn't stop them from asking him for money when when the you know, when they were seeking money. But he it was kind of funny. It's when I when I it's his experience of of being a kind of a cultural icon. Yes, is is fascinating, and he he told me, and he's he's, he's been public about this that. The whole time that the whole Fonzie phenomenon was happening, and you know, in my young, in my youth, and in probably half of America's youth, uh, 
that character is, you know, as big as Superman or any other, you know, he's a giant character. Oh, Happy Days, every Tuesday yeah. night, 8 o'clock. Uh, yeah. I was growing yeah. up in Ohio and just loved that show. Loved yeah, the everybody, films. everybody. Uh, 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 but he, he describes it as almost having happened to someone else. Hmm. Even, though he, even though he was in the middle of it, it was so kind of mind-bending for him to become this figure. He didn't quite experience it as it being him. Which you know, very interesting to me. And yeah, it, yeah. He's he's a he's a he's a he's you know well known for being like the nicest person in show business, and it's absolutely genuine. He's a, he's the sweetest guy, interesting guy. He has very severe dyslexia. Has great problems reading. No, I have no idea. Yeah, and always did. You know, has to has to. I think have uh, people read scripts to him in order for him to be able to memorize them and stuff. And he struggled with it. And when he was young. When he was a kid, uh, that was not well understood. So he was kind of subjected to a lot of um, shaming and stuff because he, even though he's very bright, he just couldn't read well. Yeah, and it, it affected his education and everything else. And you know, um, so he's but he's he's a he's coped with it, and and he's actually written a series of books for uh, kids to kind of help them through whatever kinds of. Um, uh, impasses they they encounter uh, based on his own experience. So he, I, I, I love him, and and uh, Bill Hader also is is fascinating. You know, he 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 told me <clears throat> when he first approached people with the idea of Barry, uh, they thought you know they're like, oh yeah, okay, so you'll be a you're you're this hitman, but you want to be an actor, so that's kind of the the. So it's uh, kind of fish out of water. Yeah, it sounds it uh, on the basis of that description, that kind of you know thumbnail. It sounds like a million other sitcoms. Nothing particularly promising about it. The 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 unbelievable capacity to mix the dark with the funny. Yeah, that he has, uh, and also Alec Berg, the guy who 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 um, sort of envisioned it with him, and and and. And came up with the whole idea that the, the way that they use this extreme <clears throat> darkness, um, but still kept it funny, is, is he walked this line that I've never seen anybody do that successfully. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it really does get <clears throat> quite harrowing. The story, especially this year. The no, year. this year. I mean, I you know this last episode was again not to spoil it, but it's pretty heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's just it's got both it's got both uh, tragedy and comedy, and I guess, um, and it's also got this filmic sense. It feels like you're watching a movie and not a TV show, which is one of the things I love about it. Well, I think you know that's that was uh, Bill's intention all along. <clears throat> He's he was he grew up <clears throat> not wanting to be an actor. It's it's odd because. He's incredibly talented as a performer, but um, his real desire was always to be a kind of auteur filmmaker. That's always mm -hmm. what he wanted. He studied films, you know, bought uh, Blu-rays and, and DVDs and movies, just studied them uh, and learned kind of se mostly self-taught about movie making. Um, and he, you know, he was on Saturday Night Live for, I think, nine years for a yeah, long, long yeah. time. But... <laughs> Excuse me, but those were kind of torturous years for him uh, because he was gripped with nervousness. Terrible, you know, 
terrible <laughs> nerves. So I relate to him. Yeah. Uh, very, very well. Cause he's this, he's this neurotic, brilliant guy who, uh, not only produces work that's fascinating, but is fascinating as a, as a friend also. Really Robert, interesting. Robert Wisdom was on the show the other day who plays Moss on, on the yeah, show. Yeah, he's great. And, and he says, uh, the, one of the rules Bill Hader had when he was putting the show together is no assholes. He wanted everybody, everybody to be, uh, friendly and no blow ups and no high, uh, you know, high stakes emotional, uh, issues on the set. Is that you find that to be true? Absolutely true. In fact, uh, that is, I think that is told to everybody as, as a kind of a, um, you know, a how do you do when you first get there that, that this is the, this is the way the set is, is, and it's, and they're, you know, they're absolutely true to it. It's the really great bunch of people. And it, te you know, the, I, 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 uh, Aida Rogers, the producer, uh, main, there's many producers, the main producer. Um, it's hard to keep a set with that kind of vibe uh you know there are pressures that happen and but they were able to <clears throat> able to do that and it really does create an atmosphere where where uh people are free to be creative uh you know hater bill hater was always very interested in anything anybody had to say and uh he gets great performances out of people because there's there's this kind of atmosphere where you can you can experiment, you can try different things. And, uh, uh you know, that, that always, uh, is, uh, refreshing because you don't, you don't often come up against that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and sometimes if the, if the kind of chemistry is right, uh, you, it yields great results. It's funny, you know, in fi filmmaking or television making, there are always certain, there's a certain part of it that's, it's ineffable that you can't predict. Uh, you know, I've read, things where you think oh this is going to be great you know it's a terrific cast and a great director and then you know it's you get there and it's kind of it doesn't have that that spark that you were anticipating that you were hoping for and conversely i've read things where i think jesus this doesn't seem very promising and then you see it and it's you know it's great where the description seems very uh you know like like nothing particularly uh arresting and then you see it uh, and it's unbelievable uh, I mean, a, a, a good example of that, well, there's many good examples, but um, uh, so you kind of never know. There's always a, this kind of chemical element, to use a, a hackneyed expression, um, <clears throat> that you can't predict of the people in the situation and how they kind of bounce off each other and how they bounce off the script. And um, sometimes uh, you just get this, uh, this, you know, uh, this, this fire catches and, and you're just, you know, it's just lucky. And I think, I think Barry was a situation like that. Yeah. Well, listen, this is, uh, this has been an amazing conversation. This is why I love doing this show is being able to talk to people like you, fascinating people with amazing careers and really, really happy to, to have you here. Barry is airing Sunday nights on HBO. Can't wait to see how it turns out. Fred, thank and by the way, in a huge box office hit in Palm Desert, California, a serious <laughs> man. You, you, I'm so pleased. You help keep our doors open. Uh, thanks so much for doing this, Fred. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. It's really been a pleasure. And there you have it, Fred Malamud. You know, uh, I, I'm a huge fan of talking about acting, and that was really, really cool. If you don't know who Fred Malamud is, I'm telling you, you've seen him. 
You've seen him in everything. If you've never seen a serious man, he really does play a bad guy. Uh, whether or not he as an actor views his character as a bad guy, uh, I guess you have to play it a certain way. He's a bad guy. Uh, his scenes with Michael Stuhlbarg are fantastic in that movie. And it is a fact that that movie was a gigantic hit at my theater, Cinema's Palm Door in Palm Desert, uh, California, where we had trouble at times keeping the lights on. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Really appreciate you. Thanks for watching. If this thing winds up on YouTube, I think it's going to. Uh, Sue Kalinske will return for our next show. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and usestevemason.com to get to either of those platforms. Uh, feel free to leave a rating and a review. Five-star ratings we absolutely love. Take a minute and do that for us. Uh, we will see everybody next time. Sue will be back on the Culture Pop Podcast.